The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Or write to Dean Bible Ministries Incorporated. That's at address 5868 Westheimer. W-E-S-T-H-E-I-M-E-R, number 461, Houston, Texas, 77057. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we begin our study of God's word this evening, let's make sure we're in fellowship. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to make sure you're in fellowship by using 1 John 1, 9, and then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word that you have revealed to us, that you have given us all the information you need, or that we need to uh, glorify you in our lives, that you've given us all that we need to face and surmount any problem or difficulty in life, and that all of this is the result of your love for us and your grace. Uh, As we study these things this evening, we pray that you'd help us to understand them, to concentrate, focus, and under the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit, to store them in our soul so that we can recall them for application when necessary and that the Holy Spirit will use this for our spiritual growth. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, one announcement clarification. I think it was Tuesday night or Sunday night. The days run together in my feeble mind now. But I announced on the Israel trip that we need to start getting some reservations in. If you plan to go to send in your registration, then somebody called me on Tuesday and said that uh, there was no address and no information on the printed brochure as to where we were to send it. So if you are going as part of uh, my group that goes on the tour, then send, I think it's a $300 deposit, and you send that to Dean, just send it to the Dean Bible Ministries box or to the church box and indicate on there that it's for the trip, and then we will uh, make sure that gets to uh, Wayne to uh, start uh, getting things ready to go. I think that's the only, only announcement. Okay. Open your Bibles with me to Hebrews 2. Hebrews chapter 2. And tonight we're going to cover verses 12 down to 16, hopefully. This is really getting the heart 
dynamic of God's plan for the spirit. They all be partial to the spiritual life in what God said, and there was no spirit as a result of the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit was given in the Old Testament, it was not for the purpose of sanctification, even for those who, who had the Holy Spirit. It was for the purpose of empowering them in the realm of their leadership with respect to the nation Israel. That's why when you go back to the Old Testament, the only people who have this uh, special ministry of the Holy Spirit are the craftsmen who made the furniture for the, for the uh, tabernacle, for the craftsmen who worked on all the gold and the jewels and everything in the, in the tabernacle and temple, as well as certain military leaders, uh, governmental leaders, kings, priests, prophets. Those were the only ones who had any kind of relationship to the Holy Spirit. And that relationship was either related to giving them wisdom and guidance in leadership or with respect to priests or prophets, the inspiration of the Word of God. When we come into the New Testament, it is the Holy Spirit that is the crucial difference. We are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, but we are also filled with the Holy Spirit. This Spirit concept of the spiritual life for sanctification was pioneered by the Lord Jesus Christ during the first advent. His spiritual life in his humanity was based upon his relationship and dependence upon God the Holy Spirit. And that is at the core of understanding this section from Hebrews 2 verse 10 down through the end of the chapter in 2.18. It is all built around the idea that Jesus Christ came at the first advent to present the kingdom. John the Baptist said, repent for the kingdom is at hand. When Jesus showed up on the scene after his baptism, he said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. When he sent out the disciples, he said that their message was to be repent for the kingdom is at hand. That was the message. It was the promised kingdom from the Old Testament. So the Jews knew what the message was, but they failed to respond. As a result, they also rejected Jesus as the promised king or the Messiah. So the kingdom was completely postponed. Jesus Christ was crucified. He rose from the dead. He ascended to heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. And that seating at the right hand of the Father, what we call the doctrine of the session, is directly related to the postponement of the kingdom. And we've studied this in the past. We've gone to passages such as Daniel 7, which depicts the Son of Man coming to establish the kingdom at the end of the church age, we know from New Testament Revelation. We know from Psalm 110.1 that when he ascended and seated at the right hand, the Father says, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool, which indicates that there is something going on in this period of history where the enemies of the Messiah are being defeated. And so Christ is in a position of being seated. That's related to his priesthood. So that's the backdrop for what's going on in this section. And in this section, there's an emphasis on this group of brethren, this group that are called the Metacoi in other passages. Here they're referred to as the brethren, the children. These are believers who are being trained to be Christ's associates and to rule and reign with him during the millennial kingdom. So the way in which we are sanctified 
is the same way that he was sanctified. And there's this parallel there that is very important to understand. Now let's get the context again. We've gone through the first couple of verses and we need to pick up the context. Verse 10 reads, For it was fitting that it was according to God the Father's plan. It was fitting for Him, the Father, for whom are all things and by whom are all things. And the significance of that phrase is, as the Creator, as the Sovereign God, as the Creator of the universe, God has a right to establish a plan and fulfill that plan. And so when it says it was fitting for Him, there's a reminder here that He's the Creator God. Creation is not just some secondary, nice little interesting doctrine that Christians get interested in because they don't like evolution. Creation is foundational to the whole message of the Scripture. And that's why whenever Paul went to Gentiles, he didn't start with the cross. He started with creation. And usually he didn't get very far because they rejected that, so he didn't even get to the cross. And you see that in his messages in Acts 14 when he goes to Iconium, Acts 17 when he goes to Athens, that he focuses, first of all, on the doctrine of creation. Because if you don't understand that, you can't fully appreciate the message of the gospel. So the writer of Hebrews says, It was fitting for him for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory. So we go from the beginning, creation, to the end result, which is bringing many sons to glory. So that gives us the process. That gives us the goal, the direction of God's plan. In order to do that, He sent Jesus Christ to fulfill something beyond just salvation, in terms of justification, beyond just dying on the cross as a substitute for our sins. So in order to accomplish the plan... It was proper for him to make, that is God the Father, to make the captain, better translation is pioneer or trailblazer. He is the one who set the precedent for the uh, spiritual life in bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation mature through sufferings. And I pointed out the last time that the word salvation here doesn't refer to coming to the cross and expressing faith alone in Christ alone. That's what we refer to as phase one salvation. It's talking about phase two salvation, the spiritual life. Verse 11 carries on with that idea. That's the idea here is in the process of sanctification, which we call experiential sanctification or progressive sanctification. For both he who sanctifies, that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And here it is a reference to the Lord Jesus Christ in his role in sanctification. Now, few people out there ought to be asking a question like, wait a minute, I thought it was the Holy Spirit who was the member of the Godhead who was responsible for sanctification. It is, and I want to come back and explain this in a second. For both he who sanctifies, the Lord Jesus Christ in context, and those who are being sanctified are all of one. And the Greek text stops right there, and it just says all of one. One what? Well, if you have a King James Bible or even a New American Standard, it inserts in italics the word Father. That's not in the original. That's why it's in italics. But Father doesn't make sense in the context. That's some translator's interpretation based on his faulty theology. While it is true that we are are of one Father, Jesus Christ is not in the same sense that we are. 
the focus here and throughout this section is that Jesus Christ is fully human and we're fully human and because we're of the same nature, because we're both true humanity, Jesus Christ can die for the rest of the human race and Jesus Christ can uh, set the standard, set the precedent, pioneer or trailblaze a path, a new path in terms of the process of sanctification. And on the basis of that, he's not ashamed to call us, that is, church-age believers, brethren, because we follow him down that same path. That's the thought flow in this particular section. Now, when it says, both he who sanctifies, that is, the Lord Jesus Christ, we have to understand the role of the Son in sanctification. It is the role of the Holy Spirit in sanctification to help us to understand the Word, to fill us with the Word, to bring the Word that's stored in our soul back to memory, to help us understand how to apply the Word, all of which can be subsumed under the uh, doctrine of the illumination of the Holy Spirit. Now, that's not the way God the Son is involved in sanctification. So how are we to understand that? How is God the Son involved in sanctification? Well, let's go back to a very basic chart, and I'm not sure I've shown this chart to this congregation, and I want you to know that we're not making changes in fundamental theology, we just have a different aspect and ratio on an overhead. We no longer have a top and bottom circle. We have to go with a left and right circle. Okay? Three stages of salvation. Let's back up to this one, this chart first. We have phase one, phase two, and phase three. Phase one takes place when we trust Christ as Savior. We talk about this technically as justification. That's Paul's terminology in Romans. He doesn't use the term salvation to describe that point at which the believer expresses faith alone in Christ alone, receives the imputation of righteousness, is justified, receives the imputation of eternal life, and is regenerate. For that he focuses primarily on the initial stage, which is justification. The second stage is our spiritual life. We're born anew as spiritual babies in justification, and like newborn babes, we're to desire the sincere milk of the Word, 1 Peter 2.2, and so we grow by the study of the Word and the Holy Spirit. Phase three, salvation, is glorification. So we talk about Positional sanctification, when we're identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. And we studied the doctrine of sanctification last time. I pointed out, sanctification means to be set apart. It's the, the root word here in the Greek is hagiosmos, which is related to the verb hagiadzo. But when we come to the New Testament and we study concepts related to holiness, you have to go to the Old Testament to understand holiness. Holiness in the Old Testament is the, based on the verb kadash, which means to be set apart to the service of a god. And I usually love to shock people by saying that, that, uh, that the female prostitutes and the male prostitutes in the, in the phallic cult, in the uh, fertility religions, were referred to by the male noun and the female noun forms of kadash. They were holy. That always gets people confused because you think holiness means being morally pure. And it doesn't mean that. It can pick that up as a secondary idea from certain contexts, 
But the root idea is to be set apart to the service of God. And so the prostitutes in the fertility religions were called Kadashim or Kadashot on the basis of the fact that they were set apart to serve their God. So that's what Christ is doing in his spiritual life. He's learning to serve God as he grows spiritually, not just doing away with sin. It's primarily learning to serve God. And that's the process that Christ went through without a sin nature. Adam would have gone through the same process. He didn't have a sin nature, but he still had to be sanctified. He had to learn how to obey the Lord. doesn't imply disobedience. You don't have to commit murder to learn not to commit murder. You don't have to be disobedient to learn to be obedient. But you have to go through that growth process of learning. So that is the experiential phase, progressive sanctification. But it's built on what happens to us as believers at salvation. When we are positionally identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection, positionally set apart to God, and then as we grow spiritually, learn to apply the word, there is a progressive or experiential phase where we learn to apply doctrine and we learn to live in a manner consistent with our positional sanctification. And then in glorification, there is ultimate or complete sanctification when there's no longer any sin nature. So we speak of phase one as being freed from the penalty of sin, which is spiritually, spiritual death. And at the instant of faith alone in Christ alone, we receive a new life. We're spiritually alive. In, the, in spiritual life, we are freed or saved from the power of sin. And in phase three, we are freed or saved from the presence of sin. So this is also referred to as the three tenses of salvation. We're saved from the penalty of sin when we trust Christ as Savior. We are being saved from the power of sin as we grow and mature in the Christian life. And and when we're absent from the body and face to face with the Lord, we are saved from the power of sin. But phase two and phase three grow out of positional sanctification. And this is where we go to our familiar charts with the circles. On the left, we have the eternal realities, and on the right, the temporal realities. The circle represents our position in Christ. At the instant of faith alone in Christ alone, we are identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection, according to Romans 6.3. And this is referred to as baptism. And the significance of it is that we are identified with Christ. Excuse me. We are identified with Christ in His death, burial, and resurrection, so that there is a positional death to the sin nature, not an experiential death. You still have one. I know you didn't know that, but you do. But with baptism by the Holy Spirit, we are positionally sanctified. That is why the author of Hebrews can refer to Jesus as the one who sanctifies us. Positional sanctification, not experiential sanctification. He is the one who positionally sanctifies us by virtue of the fact that we are identified with his death, burial, and resurrection. And then on the right side, we have our experiential circle where we walk in the light. We walk by means of the Holy Spirit. We're filled by the Spirit. All of these terms are expressive of different aspects of our ongoing spiritual growth. So the concept of he who sanctifies, 
relates to the positional work of Christ at the cross. Those who are being sanctified, that is the process of sanctification indicated by the participle, refers to believers in the Lord Jesus Christ who are advancing in their day-to-day spiritual growth, experiential sanctification. Now, we had this chart last time to describe that growth process. The green speaks of growth. That's the upper triangle. And the gray, or the dark area, represents living in darkness or walking in darkness. And that is when we're in carnality. As we advance through the various stages of spiritual growth, from spiritual birth to spiritual adulthood to spiritual maturity, we spend different amounts of time in spiritual growth and different amounts of time in carnality. When you're a new baby believer, you spend a little bit of time in fellowship, walking by the Spirit, abiding in Christ, walking by the Spirit, growing, and you spend a lot of time in carnality because you don't have any doctrine in your soul. So when Lordship people come along and look at you, they're going to say you're not saved because your life looks like an unbeliever. And well, it should. You don't have any doctrine yet. As you grow you will start to apply doctrine while you walk by the Spirit. You'll spend more time in fellowship. There'll be more time for growth, more time for momentum. And when you're spiritually mature, you spend more time walking by the Spirit and less time uh, walking according to the sin nature. The spiritual growth is referred to in Scripture as abiding in Christ, abiding in me, Jesus says in John 15. It's described as being in fellowship, that is, walking in partnership with God the Holy Spirit, and it describes forward momentum. The carnality area is walking according to the flesh, where the sin nature is in control, we're out of fellowship, and there is reverse momentum. If you stay out of fellowship long enough, you'll decrease in growth and you'll act like an unbeliever and think like an unbeliever, and you'll pretty much shut down all the doctrine that's in your soul. So those charts basically give us an understanding, an overview of the doctrine of sanctification. Now, as I was wrapping up last time, I couldn't remember if I finished the last two points or not, but the last two points relate to uh, where we need to go this time. The eleventh point was that the key person in the sanctification or spiritual life of the believer is God the Holy Spirit. God the Holy Spirit operates in the area of positional or experiential sanctification. Romans 15:16 where Paul said that I might be a minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, ministering the gospel of God that the offering of the Gentiles might be acceptable, sanctified that is set apart by God the Holy Spirit. That is his role. Now, there is a process in sanctification. That's why we call it progressive sanctification or experiential sanctification. There's a mechanic, and this chart is familiar to some of you that we'll get into. And it relates to testing, and that's the core dynamic. And that's at the center of this whole section in chapter 2, 3, and 4 is the concept of testing. Christ is tested and Hebrews 2, 10 through 18, the believers, Old Testament believers, are tested and fail in chapter 3. And then at the end of chapter 4, at the end of this section, we're reminded that we have a high priest 
who was tempted in all points as we are, yet without sin. So Hebrews 2.18, which is in the middle of the exhortation, and Hebrews 4.15 focus on the fact that Jesus Christ suffered and was tested just like we are. That's the pattern. Therefore, for that to have any significance, he had to have a nature just like us. But so many people think, well, Jesus handled the problems out there in the wilderness, went 40 days without food because he was, he was God. He could do it. You ever tried to go 40 days without food? Some of us can't go 40 hours without food. Some of us can't go four hours without food. How in, the, how in the world could he go 40 days without food? must have relied on his deity. Now, if he relied on his deity, it would destroy the whole thing. It was that he did this in his humanity. And then when he's tired and hungry and worn out, he gets tested by Satan. And there's the three temptations in the wilderness. And that relates to his humanity. Is he going to rely upon God the Holy Spirit to sustain himself to stay in the plan of God, or is he going to bail out and yield to the test and take the shortcut to glory and seek the crown without going through the cross? So Jesus is tested not only in the wilderness, but throughout his life, just living with sinners, living with parents who are sinners, living with siblings that are sinners, uh, being involved in a carnal political system, a a system of tyranny, uh, just the whole environment, Jesus Christ, has to go through one test after another, and he has to handle that on the basis of doctrine and reliance and dependence upon God the Holy Spirit. And he does that without sin. That is what not only qualified him to go to the cross, but that's what makes him as a high priest, someone who uh, understands our weaknesses and sustains us and helps us no matter what we're going through. Whatever you're going through, it's not unique to you. Everybody else goes through similar things, and Jesus Christ went through the same thing, and therefore He can aid us. And that is the primary message throughout this particular section. So we go to our chart. Brief overview. Phase 1, salvation. Phase 2, you have a different blueprint. We have a process going on here that we'll break down in just a minute, so don't try to get it all down. This chart's out on the Internet, by the way. But this describes the, the process of spiritual growth. We're either walking by the Holy Spirit, that top cycle indicated in the green, or we're walking according to the sin nature. That's the area on the bottom side indicated by red, one or the other, depending on whether or not we're exercising our volition to apply the word and walk by means of the Spirit. And then when it's all over with, there's an evaluation at the judgment seat of Christ. And if we have produced gold, silver, and precious stones or divine good, then there's rewards and inheritance. And if we're, we've been disobedient, walking according to the flesh, then there's a loss of rewards and temporary shame at the judgment seat of Christ. Okay? Let's break it down a little bit. At salvation, we trust Christ as our Savior. We get a new life. We're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And we have a new resource for understanding the Word of God and for applying the Word of God, and that's God the Holy Spirit. Nevertheless, it still is dependent on our volition, to exercise our volition to walk by means of the Holy Spirit. And there are going to be various tests. This is what James refers to in James 1, 2 through 4 as tests of faith. 
God, we're going to learn something, we're going to go to school, and then God's going to give us a quiz. And that's what life's all about. If you don't like going to school and taking quizzes, then you're in the wrong business in the Christian life. It's just learning doctrine, taking quizzes, learning doctrine, taking quizzes, until we graduate and get our report card to the judgment seat of Christ. So we're to count, counter all joy whenever we encounter trials or tests. Because we know something. We know that the testing of our faith, the testing of doctrine in our soul, produces endurance. So we have, every time there's a test, we exercise our volition. And when we're positive, we're walking by the Spirit, then there's the production of divine good. There's a production of the abundant life, which is a quality of life, capacity for life. And it produces evidence or a testimony in the angelic conflict that God's will is good and perfect. That's Romans 12.2. Furthermore, it develops endurance. The more we're consistent, the more endurance we develop, as according to James 1.2-4, produces steadfast endurance, and that in turn produces maturity. That word teleos there, translated perfect in James uh, 1.4. It has its perfect or maturing result. That's the cycle. We go through that cycle every time we learn doctrine, get tested, there's growth, and it's God the Holy Spirit that produces the growth. But when we're negative and we try to handle life's problems and adversities, apart from dependence on God the Holy Spirit, it produces sin, human good, and temporal death. It produces the sin, sin from the sin nature in terms of personal sins, such as mental attitude sins, sins of the tongue, and uh, overt sins also produces human good all those little good works that uh, are the product of just living on our own and without being dependent upon God and this leads to temporal death and that term is used many times it produces dead works in, according to Hebrews chapter 6 that in turn leads to a weakness in our soul and instability James uses the term disukos has the idea of being two-souled. It's just you're unstable. You can't make up your mind. One, one minute you want to be living like a believer, the next minute you don't. And there just leads to increasing instability in life and leads to poor decision-making. This, in turn, leads to spiritual regression and a hardened heart. This is the overview. This is the process. Then when we die and we are absent from the body face-to-face with the Lord, there will be a, an evaluation at the judgment seat of Christ. And that which is produced by walking by the Holy Spirit is rewardable. We receive rewards, inheritance, privileges, and position in the millennial kingdom. When we are, have logged maximum time in the sin nature, there's a loss of reward and temporary shame at the judgment seat of Christ. So what matters is to understand where we're going, where God is taking us, because that final disposition at the judgment seat of Christ determines what we do in the millennial kingdom and it impacts eternity. So the basis for living the spiritual life in the church age is laid out by Jesus Christ during the during the incarnation and it's designed to produce this cadre that's going to rule with him in the millennial kingdom. The Old Testament picture for this is when David is in the wilderness. And David is the anointed king. And the word for anointed is Mashiach, the Messiah. He's the anointed king. 
But Saul is still the king. But Saul's in carnality. Saul's out of fellowship and under divine discipline. And at this stage, Saul, even though he's not an unbeliever, he is a type of Satan. And he is hostile and antagonistic to God's anointed. And so he's run David out of town, and now David is operating like a vagabond down in the wilderness. And as Saul continues his meltdown, because he is a Daisukas believer, as he continues his meltdown, more and more people have to flee the court, they have to flee the capital, they have to get away from Saul. And so they align themselves with David, and they all live down in the wilderness together in temporary quarters, and they are the outcasts of society. And that is a type of the church. Jesus Christ has been rejected by the world. He's been rejected by Israel. He came to be their king. He was rejected. He is now in absentia, but he is bringing together a cadre of outcasts. And we're that cadre of outcasts. And so when David finally assumed the throne of, of Judah... Who was put in a position of rulership? It was those mighty men that had gathered to his banner when he was down in the wilderness. And so that's the picture from the Old Testament of what Jesus Christ is doing with church-age believers. Now I want you to notice as we go through this passage that there's an emphasis on this group in verses 11 through 14. In verse 11, he's not ashamed to call them brethren. In verse 12, there is a quote from the Old Testament from Psalm 22 that he will declare and praise the name of God to the brethren. And then in verse 13, there is a quote from Isaiah 8, 17 and 18. And here the term shifts from brethren to the children whom God has given me. And then the term children is used again in Hebrews 2, 14. So the focus here is on us. These terms, the brethren and children, refer to church-age believers and demonstrate that the process here of Jesus Christ's sanctification is directly related to modeling and preparing and pioneering sanctification for us as church-age believers. Okay, let's get into the details. Hebrews 2.12. Hebrews 2.12 introduces a quote from the Old Testament from Psalm 22.22 to substantiate the point that the writer has just made in verse 11 that he is not ashamed to call them brethren. That is, those who are being sanctified. He is proud to call them brethren. And then there's this quote to substantiate it from Psalm uh, 22. Now, what's interesting, if you know your Psalms, is that Psalm 22 is a psalm that is frequently referenced to what Christ quotes on the cross. The first line in Psalm 22 is, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in the Hebrew, that was the title of the psalm. And when Jesus is on the cross, when the sins of the world began to be poured out upon him, he cried out to the Father, not just the first verse, but the first 17, 16 or 17 verses in the psalm. It's his, what he is reciting because the thrust of those first 17 verses is a reliance upon God in the midst of rejection and hostility. When someone is being attacked and assaulted and their life is being threatened, Psalm 
22 is talking about the dependence upon God to sustain in the midst of trials. But there's a shift that takes place beginning in verses 19 to 22. And in verses 19 to 21, there is a prayer in Psalm 22 that relates to resurrection. And so we see that. I have it up on the screen. Verse 20, Deliver me from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. So the writer is talking about his being attacked, his life is being threatened. And, of course, as it's applied to Christ, he, he dies on the cross, but rather than staying in the grave, he's going to be resurrected from the grave. Psalm 22:21, Save me from the lion's mouth and from the horns of the wild oxen. You have answered me. And then, following the typical pattern of a lament psalm, there is a praise at the end. And at the end, the, this is put in the mouth of the Messiah, he declares a praise to God because he's delivered him in the midst of the adversity. So he says, I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. The I refers to the Lord Jesus Christ. The you, the your name, refers to the character, the attributes of God the Father, specifically in relation to his ability to deliver and aid in the midst of adversity. Jesus is presented here as praising God because of what God has done to deliver him in the midst of all this hostility and antagonism and in the midst of the pressure of adversity. So this verse is used by the writer of Hebrews to talk about the fact that in the testing process of sanctification, Jesus Christ concluded everything by the time of the resurrection and praised God because God's grace was sufficient to sustain him in the midst of all of those pressures and all the tests. Now, you and I will never face tests to the same level of intensity that Jesus Christ did. And if God the Father was able to sustain him, if the grace of God was sufficient to sustain him in those trials, then the grace of God is sufficient to sustain you in those trials. If the word of God is, was sufficient enough to sustain Jesus in his trials, the word of God is sufficient to sustain us in the midst of those trials. And that is the point that the writer of Hebrews is making, is that Jesus Christ, as our pioneer, went through all of these tests, and at the end he was able to praise God, to declare God's character, God's sufficiency, God's power to the brethren, that is to us. And in the midst of the assembly, which is the synonymous parallelism to the first uh, stanza, in the midst of the assembly, assembly, I will sing praise to you. So the point here is that the Messiah is able to sing the praises of God to us because just as God the Father sustained him through doctrine, through the Holy Spirit, so through grace, so God the Father is able to sustain us. And then we have two more quotes. The first is from Isaiah eight seventeen, and the second is from Isaiah eight eighteen. The verse begins, or verse thirteen begins, and again, this is simply a way of citing the next verse. He says, he says, saying, and he has the first quote in verse twelve, and again, that is the second quote from. And verse th the first part of verse 13, and again, that is the introduction to the third quote, 
in the second half of verse 13. It says, and again, I will put my trust in him. Now that sounds like a great promise, doesn't it? I will put my trust in him. But there's a lot more to this than meets the eye in the English. This is an incredibly strong statement in the Greek. It's a quote from the passage in Isaiah. And at the end of Isaiah 8.17, there is a statement that I will trust in God. And the word in the Hebrew for trust in the Hebrew text is kavah which is the same word that we have in Isaiah 40:31. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. The word kavah has to do with confidence, with a hope, with a confident expectation, with the ability to completely rely and trust in God because you know where you're going. Once again, we come back to the concept of our personal sense of our eternal destiny. We know where God is taking us. We know that every decision we make today is going to affect eternity that the decisions we make today determine who who we will be and what we will do in the millennial kingdom and that we must live today in light of eternity. And so the word kavah indicates this sense of trust. But when the translators, the Jewish translators of the Septuagint took this phrase, I will trust in him, and translated it into Greek, they did something even more profound. And what they did was to put it in a way that the writer of Hebrews could then come along and quote this as an indication of the profound trust the Lord Jesus Christ had. In the Greek, you have an interesting grammatical construction. If you want to say certain things, you take a participle, and then you add the word, uh, a, the verb a me before it. And this is called a periphrastic participle. So it's like uh, saying, I am running. The am would translate the ami, running would translate the participle. But in certain kinds of constructions, it has an extremely strong meaning. Here you have the word ami, I am going to trust him, in a sense, as a helping verb, but it's attached not to a present participle, I am trusting him, but it's attached to a perfect Now, a perfect participle indicates completed results. Perfect tense always indicates completed results of an already performed action. Okay, now this is where it gets difficult to explain. Because when it says, I am, and then it uses a perfect participle, it's like saying, I am already completed. I I am already complete in my trust. That's the idea. The perfect participle indicates action that's already taken place, action that is already complete, and it emphasizes as an intensive perfect the ongoing, the ongoing thrust of of the act of trusting. Now, what makes it even more interesting is that the ami verb is in the future tense. So you have a future tense, I am, plus a perfect, that is, completed action, participle. In essence, what this does in combining together is to make a statement that I have already completed an act of trust in the past. 
with results that not only continue in the present, but I am so certain of my completed act of trust that it's going to continue on into the future indefinitely without exception. It's about the strongest way you can say I have trusted in the past with results that continue in the present and go on into the future. Here's a couple of ways we could express it in English. I have already put my trust in him in the past with results that continue from the present into the future. Or we could say, since in the past I trusted fully in him, I shall always trust in him in the future. It is a statement of profound confidence and trust in God based upon a com- action that has been completed in the past. When this is taken in this context of verse 13 and applied to the Messiah, what this is showing is that the entire life of Christ was a life that was based on the bedrock foundation of trust in God, a trust that was so profound that when it's completed initially in trust, it continued throughout his life and on into the future. That is the model for how we should trust Christ. There should be a a view of faith in our soul that we trust God. It's a bedrock confidence so profound that it's continuing in the present and going on in the future so that no matter what happens, no matter what the adversity, no matter what the test, no matter what the problem, no matter how overwhelming it may be, whether you lose everything, whether all your hopes and dreams are shattered, whether whether it happens as a result of financial collapse or some sort of meteorological disaster like Katrina, whatever it may be, your trust in God is so profound that the result is just perfect stability in your soul. That you have determined to trust in Christ, to trust in God, to rely on the sufficiency of His grace, sufficiency of Scripture, sufficiency of the cross, so that no matter what happens, you're unshakable and you're stable. And it's built on the precedence set by the Lord Jesus Christ. So the writer of Hebrews makes a simple statement connecting the sanctification of the Lord Jesus Christ and the sanctification of the believer. And then he supports that by two quotes from the Old Testament that reinforce the sufficiency of God's grace in the life of the Messiah in the midst of trials. In the original context of Isaiah 8, just as a further note, In the context of Isaiah 8, Isaiah is prophesying regarding the coming collapse of the northern kingdom of Israel due to the Assyrian invasion. And in the midst of that, he talks about the fact that the people are not trusting in God. Nevertheless, he is trusting in God. I'm going to turn back there for just a minute just to pick up the context. He says, For the Lord spoke to me, in verse 11, For the Lord spoke thus to me with a strong hand and instructed me that I should not walk in the way of this people. The people of Israel were not trusting in God. They were operating on paganism. They were living like all those around, using the same value system as everybody around. And they were blaming the problems on other factors rather than their own failure to trust God and going out under the fifth cycle of discipline. They were claiming that it was a conspiracy. So uh, Isaiah says, Don't say a conspiracy concerning all of this people call a conspiracy, nor be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. The Lord of hosts, him you shall 
sanctify. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. In other words, don't be afraid of the things that are happening to you. Don't be afraid of adversity. Don't be afraid of the test that you're going through. Don't be afraid of losing anything. What you need to fear is the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The fear of the Lord is the foundation of the Christian life. So don't fear what man can do to you. Fear what God can do to you. He will be as a sanctuary in verse 14. A sanctuary means a place of protection. It is God who is our source of protection. But Isaiah says, A stone of stumbling and a rock of offense to both the houses of Israel. In other words, God's grace to us is a place of security, but to unbelievers it's a trap. It's a stumbling block. Peter picks up on that idea in 1 Peter chapter 2 and relates it to the Lord Jesus Christ. And then when we get down to verse 16, Isaiah says, Bind up the testimony, seal the law among my disciples. In other words, it is the word of God that's the source of strength. And that's when he says, And I will wait on the Lord who hides his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. That's the quote that we find in Hebrews chapter 2 where it says, I will trust in him or I have already trusted in him with results that go on forever. Okay, let's go back to Hebrews Hebrews 2. Hebrews 2.14 then makes application in relationship to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. It begins in the New King James with the word inasmuch, which is kind of a weak translation of the Greek, which begins epi-un. The un is the, uh, draws a conclusion. The epi-un is the uh, reinforces that. Therefore, since. Therefore, as a conclusion to what we have just learned about the sanctification of God the Son in His humanity and His process of spiritual growth, therefore, based on that reality, as, that is, in the same manner, as the children, that's you and me, believers in the Lord Jesus Christ and our humanity, as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, as we are true humanity, he goes on to say, He himself likewise. Now the word translated partaken of flesh is the Greek verb koinoneo in a perfect active indicative indicating, once again, completed action in the past. It's an intensive perfect emphasizing the present results of a past action that we are presently having been born flesh and blood. We are true humanity. He himself likewise, and that's the Greek word paraplasios, plasios, is an adverb in like manner in the same way. So it starts with us as creatures, flesh and blood, and says in the same way that we are. Jesus Christ is true humanity in the same way we are. He's not handling these things in his deity. He has to handle them in his humanity. That's the point. He himself, in the same way as us, shared in the same. The same what? The same flesh and blood. He shared in the same trials and tests, with the result that, through death, he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. Okay, let's take a minute to think about that. Through death. What kind of death? Spiritual death. When he bore the judgment of sin on the cross. When he bore the penalty of sin on the cross. That through death, by his victory over death, he might destroy him who had the power of death. 
He destroyed the power of Satan, which was broken at the cross. It doesn't mean he's still not powerful. It doesn't mean he's still not the God of this age or the prince and the power of the air. But that he has been permanently and fatally defeated. This was the fulfillment of the Old Testament prediction in Genesis 3.15. When God, the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ actually, spoke to the serpent and said that the seed of the woman would bruise him, uh, that he would bruise the seed of the woman on the heel, but the seed of the woman would bruise him on the head, a fatal wound. So that at the cross, Satan's power is positionally broken. He's defeated. It's not played out yet in history, but his defeat was secured at the cross by the death of Christ. So that the, the devil who has the power of death, who's the source of death in the human race, was defeated by Christ's work on the cross. And then it's another verb that's interesting here. He himself likewise shared. That's the verb meteko, to share, to participate. It's a parallel to koinoneo, but it's the root from which we get that word metekoi, the noun. Metekoi, meaning those who share with Christ, those who will rule and reign with Christ in the coming kingdom. And then verse 15, that he might destroy those who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. This is the whole principle laid out by Paul in Romans chapter 6, that we're born in bondage to the sin nature. But the instant you've put your faith and trust in Christ and you're identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection, the power of the sin nature is broken. You're no longer a slave to sin. You are a slave to righteousness. And Paul says, Therefore, consider yourselves dead to sin and live like a servant of righteousness. It's the foundation for Paul's whole development of the spiritual life in Romans 6, 7, and 8. The three key chapters in Romans related to sanctification. Christ died to destroy the power of the devil and to release those, that is, those who believe in him, who through fear of death were in their lifetime subject to bondage. Bondage to what? Bondage to the sin nature. So that at the cross we are saved positionally from the penalty of sin, and in sanctification we go on and on and on being freed or saved or delivered from the power of the sin nature, that ongoing enslavement of the sin nature uh, during phase two. Now this brings us up to the last two verses, or one more verse to cover, then we'll get to the last two verses. Verse 16, For indeed he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. This is the last point that he makes before he drives it home in the conclusion. For indeed he, that is God the Father, does not give aid to the angels. Well, what's this all about? Well, he's making a point that God doesn't sustain the angels like he sustains us. There's no plan of sanctification for the angels like there is for us. There are no problem-solving devices for the angels like there are for us. God the Father isn't coming along to succor and sustain the angels like he did us. He's not. He, the Messiah didn't appear as an angel to provide uh, aid to the angels. It is to us the seed of Abraham. The phrase here, indeed, is the Greek word depu, which means indeed with certainty. 
And the word translated aid is the Greek verb epilambano, which has the idea of giving aid or taking somebody by the hand or helping them along. So the whole principle here is, for he does not help angels. But the principle is that God the Son established a spiritual life pattern to give help to us, not for the angels. He does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Now, who are the seed of Abraham? Well, the seed of Abraham are those who put faith in Christ, just as Abraham did. This is seen in Galatians 3, 6 through 9. Just as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness, Genesis 15, 6, therefore know that only those who are of faith, that is, who have put faith alone in Christ alone, are sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, Preach the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, In you all the nations shall be blessed. So then, verse 9, those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. So we're sons of Abraham. Does that make us Jewish? This is a pop quiz. Does that make us Jewish? No. What makes you Jewish? You're a son of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We're sons of Abraham because we follow his pattern in faith alone, in Christ alone. Now, his faith anticipated the coming of the Messiah. Our faith looks back to the accomplished work of the Messiah. But it's still faith alone and Christ alone. So the principle laid down in verses 12 through 16 is that God's plan was such that the Son would come and establish a pattern or precedent as a pioneer of a spiritual life that would not be based on the Mosaic Law, not be based on Old Testament dynamics, but would be best based on dependence upon God the Holy Spirit. This spiritual life, as it was pioneered and perfected by the Lord Jesus Christ, was then bequeathed to the church-age believers, so that by following in his pattern, following down that trail he blazed, we would be qualified in the same way that he was qualified, so that we can rule and reign with him as his companions, as overcomers, in the millennial kingdom. Now this is based on the function and operation of his high priesthood, which is what is spelled out in the next two verses, and we'll have to come back next time to develop those ideas. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word this evening, to be challenged with an understanding of the spiritual life that goes above and beyond what is usually thought of as the spiritual life. That Jesus Christ pioneered this. He set the pattern for us in his humanity demonstrating that through the power of God the Holy Spirit and the Word of God, we can have the same victory and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, the same mechanics, the same process, and achieve spiritual maturity to glorify and honor you. Father, we pray that you would help us to understand these things in our own spiritual life and apply them consistently. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.